0: We'll look back at the biggest stories of 2021, both the ones that the legacy media completely ignored and the ones that they blew way out of context and way out of proportion. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's great to have you here. I'm really happy that we're able to provide content throughout throughout the holiday, throughout Christmas. I hope everyone had a wonderful time with their families on Christmas and that you're looking ahead to New Year's. Now, for me, I wanted to bring in my colleague and my friend Andrew Lawton to to join me to sort of reflect on the year that was, look back at 2021 and talk about the the, the biggest stories of the year. And, and like I said, the ones that the media ignored, the ones that the media got wrong. So first, Andrew, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to the program.
1: Yes, it's happy to be here. Do we still
0: get to say Merry Christmas?
1: I, I never know when the, the statute of limitations on Merry Christmases ends.
0: I feel that way with um, with November 11th, Remembrance Day, because I love wearing a poppy, but then I know that the like protocol is that you, you have to take the poppy off as soon as you go to the Remembrance Day ceremony, but yeah, it's December, you can still say Merry Christmas. Okay, well, Merry
1: Christmas to you and, and all those watching.
0: Thank you. Okay, so, so for the show today, I thought we'd do something a little different, a little fun, and so I asked you to come up with your own... Uh, answers to these three questions and then I have my own so, so we can sort of compare notes here but I asked you to bring the what you thought was the top story of the year, what you thought was the top story that the media just didn't cover and completely ignored and that what you thought was the the biggest sort of media narrative lie or the story that the legacy media just got completely wrong or blew out of proportion. So so and let's start with your, your pick. What was your pick for the biggest story of the year in Canada in 2021?
1: So I almost did a cop-out at first and just said, well, clearly the election. But to be honest, I think the election was like the smallest story of the year because we all knew it was was coming and the result was kind of the same as it was before the election. So I I then kind of went back and I ended up on an unconventional choice. So bear with me here. I thought that the flags being at half-mast for as long as they were was one of the bigger stories of the year. And and the two reasons I think that are, are firstly because... It really informs the platitudinal way that Justin Trudeau approaches most policy. And the other side of that was also because it involves so many different dimensions to it. Remember, there, were, there was no clear line on when the flags would go back up to full mass. There was no metric. And Aaron O'Toole had spoken out about it, and it ended up becoming quite a significant theme in the election and for several months after. So my pick, unconventional, but the flags being at half mast for uh, basically five months.
0: Well, excellent choice. I think I think that there's definitely a narrative around that that, that 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 goes to show where we are as a country. This idea that Canada is a hateful genocidal um, you know, state that's been built on, on genocide and, and slavery and all these things. That, that that's sort of the, the left's chosen narrative. I don't think very many Canadians buy into it, but there was a, a study and I think it said that about half of Canadians believe that our country is systemically racist. So clearly that's something that something is a problem, that that so many Canadians believe that Um, and and, and of course all the hectoring from the media, finding every little example of of anything and blowing it out of proportion as if that's the sort of defining feature of Canadian life. But also, um, Andrew, you know, just to give you credit, during the election you were embedded in the Conservative uh, campaign you, you followed them um, on the campaign trail for a week as a journalist and you, one, one of the probably the the highlight for us at true north was you asking this question to erin o'toole and him giving kind of a surprising answer because we, we know that Aaron O'Toole took a very sort of timid approach, he, he didn't want to talk about any cultural issues, he didn't want to defend, be seen as defending Canada, he didn't, he didn't really take very many Conservative positions at all, to be frank. Uh, but This was one of the moments of the campaign where he actually did carve out a pretty decent Conservative position, because you asked him this very question about, about the flags and, and him saying that you know, it's time to bring them up, so, 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 so there's a true north element to the story as well.
1: Yeah. And one interesting behind the scenes aspect of that, uh, you know, because I got very friendly with a lot of the reporters that were on the campaign trail and we were all sort of chatting and and there was a collective frustration with how many non-answers Aaron O'Toole was giving most days when he was asked questions. So it was sort of this this running joke of, oh, well, no news today because he didn't say anything. And this question he started out as though he was not going to give an answer because he just went through the whole, yes, reconciliation is important. And then it was at the tail end of the answer. When everyone has sort of assumed that, okay, it's done, he's not going there, he said, but yeah, it's time for the flags to come up. And there was just this jolt among the press there that were saying, wow, whoa, he's he's making news. He, he's going for it. So it was a bit surprising, but it ended up becoming the story of the day. And, and then over the next couple of days, because then the media tried to get Justin Trudeau's response. And eventually, I think it got back where most people, even a lot of people on the left were saying to Trudeau, like, what's the end game here?
0: Right. Like what, what is the point other than just doing what Justin Trudeau does best, which is uh, sending empty virtue signals uh, that don't really mean anything, that don't really do anything, but can make him and his liberal um, followers feel good about something. I don't know. And, and and meanwhile, you know, make make conservatives angry and just say enough is enough. Let's celebrate our country uh, with all its faults. It's not like we're blind to those. We, we are aware that we're not perfect. All right. Well, uh, for my for my biggest story of the year, I mean, this is sort of two years in a row where COVID is is, is everything. COVID is everywhere we look, everything we talk about. There's an, an element of that. So uh, for me, the biggest story of the year, Andrew, is the enduring presence of COVID in our lives. And not just that, the, the moving goalposts when it comes to uh, compliance and how we're dealing with it. The sort of, especially in Canada, the media uniformity in the way that these issues are discussed. There's no dissenting opinion allowed whatsoever. And even, even if you um, raise some questions, what I found with True North is that the other legacy media journalists sort of turn on you and try to bully you and try to discredit you on social media. We've seen that so much. And interestingly, uh, Andrew, one of the things that COVID has done is it's made conspiracy theorists, uh, made their points validated. We've seen this so many times, like I was looking at an old Justin Lang tweet, right? This is from August, 2020. And, you know, he hates us, he hates True North, whatever. And so this particular piece, he is furious at um, the Toronto Sun column by our colleague, Anthony Fury. And the issue that he's angry about is that he thinks that Andrew, or sorry, he thinks that Anthony is spreading a dangerous conspiracy theory, hinting at the idea that we're gonna have a vaccine mandate. Um, and, and, and this is my favorite uh, uh, quote here. It says, Anthony Fury, the Toronto Sun and True North crew are actively pushing really, really dangerous misinformation about the pandemic and they don't really seem to care. So, so Ling was calling us conspiracy theorists because we were hinting that there might be vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. Of course, that's become true. Uh, that, that's not a conspiracy. That was just us sort of reading the writing on the wall. But you know, if, if someone were to stop you, Andrew, in, in April of 2020, when this thing was first started, when we first started doing our daily shows, a True North update to, to give updates, if, if someone would have described what life is like in December, of uh, 2021, you wouldn't believe them. You would say, no, that's that's conspiratorial. They're not going to, uh, you know, have these huge campaigns to force um, mandate Vaccines fire people who who refuse, um, and um, you know then turn around and say, oh well these, these these vaccines aren't really working the way that we want them to, so now you're going to have to continue with a booster. Like all of this stuff has happened over the last year, it's 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 really just been dystopian to watch. So I, and now of course we're seeing vaccines ro- rolled out for kids. Um, we're seeing the the idea of a forced booster, the the uh, revolving door uh, goalposts, moving goalposts uh, with regards to what it means to be fully vaccinated. So the fact that COVID is still such a big deal in our lives, Andrew, to me, is the top news story of the year.
1: Yeah, and it's not just the presence of COVID, but as you indicated there, the presence presence of all these government responses to COVID, which oftentimes are are worse than the COVID itself, in in the sense of of what they achieve and and what they seek to do. And I, I think that's That's very poignant, and I wish we could say that we were going to leave this behind us in 2021. But with all the discourse around Omicron and you know whatever the next six or seven variants uh, that are being cooked up in Wuhan now are like it's going to get worse in 2022, I fear. And I do think that's why it's been so important to have independent media actually talking about some of these stories. And like I remember at the very beginning when you and I were, were talking again, this is 2020 now, but. We were talking almost in a like a novelty when you get these stories about, oh, you know, someone ticketed for playing in a public park, and, and they were wrong. But I mean, that was just so small potatoes compared to some of the bigger battles we've seen in 2021 with churches being shut down, pastors being arrested. So no, I would definitely agree that still is the, the preeminent story of our time.
0: Yeah, so, so I was talking to, I was talking to a uh... A scientist friend of mine about covid the other day and he said that the trajectory of covid is exactly what you would want that every variant uh, spreads more quickly that it reaches more people but that it is less impactful so it's having less of a deadly effect each time it seems like that's what omicron is looking like so instead of saying okay this thing has probably run its course we don't need all of these over uh, heavy-handed overreaching Regulations, we can start to just, you know, live with COVID. It seems like our government officials and and this sort of expert class that's evolved from this whole pandemic. It's like they're they're just clenching onto control. They don't want to let go of that glory, of that power. And it's like, you know, there's no such thing as a temporary government program, right? Now, now that we've lived with this kind of overreaching government presence in our lives, it's going to be a, a, a fight. It's going to be a fight to, to win back our, our freedoms and, and to go back to the way that things should be in a free and liberal society, Andrew. So again, just more reasons why this is the biggest story of the year. Okay, let's move on and talk about the biggest stories that the media did not cover. So I'll I'll, I'll let you go uh, first with this one, Andrew. What was, it, what was your biggest story that the media did not cover?
1: For me, and this is a huge one, Bill C-36. And if that number doesn't ring a bell to you, that's because the media was not giving it much attention. This is the bill that the Liberals put forward just before, like literally the day before Parliament rose for the summer with the Liberals knowing Parliament wouldn't go back uh, because they were going to call an election. It's the bill that would put a hate speech in the criminal code or sorry, put hate speech in the Canadian Human Rights Act and also amend the criminal code to genuinely allow for the prosecution of thought crimes. So this was restoring a formerly repealed section of the Canadian Human Rights Act and actually doing more with it. And this is, again, a tremendously dangerous bill, significant implications against free speech on face value. It's in the text of the bill. And the media coverage on it was virtually non-existent. And part of that was because the political opposition was virtually non-existent. Darren O'Toole did not utter a word about this when it was released. He did in the campaign come out in the platform and say that he would oppose such measures, but did not utter a word at all. There was talk about Bill C-10, sure, but Bill C-36, which was much worse, was ignored by the conservative establishment and completely ignored by the legacy media as well.
0: Which is pretty wild because, you know, you'd think that the purpose of a free press is to defend sort of the basic freedoms associated with freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and yet they they didn't want anything to do with it. I think there's been this weird narrative built up, Andrew, that somehow there's these dangerous right-wing forces that exist online that somehow pose a threat to society or that that it could lead to political violence or or something like that, even though there's not really any evidence, any evidence that I can see that these shadow groups really exist in the the way that the, the media and the liberal government described them. What, what, what do you think is behind this? Why, why is Justin Trudeau doing this? He's a liberal. He's supposed to care about the charter. The very first thing listed in the charter is freedom of speech and freedom uh, of, of um, press. So, so, so why, why is he doing this, do you think?
1: Well, I think the, there are two things there. Number one, the government knows that when it uses words like hate speech, they're kind of like assault rifle, which is that people hear them And they conjure an image of what they are that isn't inherently accurate. And most people would say, well, yeah, of course, I'm against hate speech. Okay, ergo, if you're going after hate speech, that's fine. But the reality is those terms lack meaning and they're very political because the government can use them to apply them to whatever they want. So I'm all I'm against hate speech as well. I think hate speech is deplorable. But you and I may have different definitions of what hate speech is. Certainly, Justin Trudeau and I are going to have different definitions of what hate speech is. And I would take the view that even if speech is hateful and deplorable, that doesn't mean it is not protected by free speech. So I I think that one of the big explanations to address your question there of the why is because they can.
0: It's wild. It's it's almost like everything the liberals do, I just cynically think purpose is to try to trap the conservatives, so they presume that a principled conservative opposition will say, no, 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 we believe in free speech, we believe in these principles and and sort of make the case as to why you don't really want to just outright ban this stuff because if you take an idea, you ban it, it's just going to push it underground, it's going to make it seem more appealing and that idea will spread. The the, the best way to combat real hate speech is through daylight, right? Daylight is the best disinfectant, they say. And so a principled opposition would make this case. Whereas we don't have that in this country, we don't have that with Aaron O'Toole, and so instead, Erin O'Toole just says, okay, uh, whatever you want, and, and, and we've seen that with multiple bills, Andrew, we saw that earlier in December with the um, quote-unquote so-called conversion therapy bill, uh, which really just banned conversations um, that, that, that people might have with, with even with a registered therapist if they're confused about their gender or their sexual orientation that's now illegal and all the conservatives are jumping up and down for joy um, that this bill got unanimous consent. So the, the problem is that we don't have a real opposition in this country because the conservatives are so desperate to be loved by the media and the sort of fancy people like the liberals um, that they're not doing the job they're supposed to be doing which is opposing the government.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right to point out the conservative default position of being timid. I think that's so huge. And also, I think related to that is that in order to take a principled stand for free speech, you need to defend some very unpopular and unpalatable things. Now, I have no issue doing that, not because I defend the merit of the comments, but because I defend the right for people to say unpalatable things. That's the whole point of free speech. But there are a lot of people, certainly in the political class, that are not comfortable standing up for things that on their surface are bad because they don't want to have to own that. And I, I think it's actually more important to, te- to then return to the principled stand, because if you're consistent in supporting free speech as a general concept, as a general ethos, then you don't need to get into the details of, oh, what, what about this comment and what I have said that. You don't need to because you're consistent. So I don't even engage on the specific merit. Same as when we were talking about Uh, individuals that have been deplatformed. And someone would say, well, do you agree with them saying X? And they say, I don't care. I don't care what they say. It could be you know, Mahatma Gandhi speaking. It could be Mother Teresa. It could be Milo Yiannopoulos. There's a trio that uh, is one for the ages. It doesn't matter if you're consistent about it and you focus on the importance of freedom. You don't need to get dragged into that. But the conservatives have never quite been on sure enough footing to do that.
0: Well, these conservatives know, but I, I think I think the broader issue, of course, is the, the media narrative that they don't want. They know that the, that the media will frame it exactly how the liberals have asked, exactly what the liberals say. And so exactly to your point, rather than you know the headline being Aaron O'Toole defends free speech, it will be Aaron um, O'Toole defends this horrible, horrible Nazi who said this deplorable thing, which... You know, Aaron O'Toole might not be sophisticated enough to, to fight back against that. He wants to avoid any, any any mention of that. But in the process, he is completely selling out conservative principles and putting us in, in a dangerous position as a country where we don't have anyone uh, to fight back against these uh, these horrific assaults on our freedom, Andrew. So good choice. I, I tend to agree. My biggest story of the year um, to me has to be the assault. On Christians in this country, and we've alluded to it a little bit. It, you know, this is this is pretty wild, Andrew, because it's particularly happening in Western Canada. You would think that Western Canada, uh, of the whole country, would be the sort of least likely place where we would see these sort of sustained attacks on Christians. But I'm talking about two stories in particular. The first is the arrest and prosecution of a handful of pastors, mostly in Alberta. We had Arthur Pulowski, we had uh, Tim Stevens, and then another um, fellow uh, pastor in Manitoba named Tobias Tissen, who was arrested all of whom, there are probably others as well, I, mean, I don't know if you can think of any others, Andrew, but there were so many um, that were arrested for the crime of holding church services. And a lot of times this was at, you know, at the same point where something else was open. You could go to a restaurant, you could go uh, to a sports arena, you could do all kinds of things. We're starting to open up again, and yet for some reason we are still uh, going after a religious sacred ceremony um, for, for, for people in a time where we where we need hope, where we need um, community. And, and the fact that they were arresting and making examples out of these pastors was despicable. Andrew, in fact, you know, if, if this was happening in another country, you would you would see conservative leaders, people like Jason Kenney, I hope people like Aaron O'Toole speaking out against it if we we're seeing this happen in China or, you know, in somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, yeah, it's happening in Canada and no one bats an eye at it. So, so that, that, and of course the media doesn't cover it. Um, and then, and then the sort of other story that that had to do with, with Christians was the um, burning and desecration of dozens and dozens of churches across Canada in the summer. And, you know, sometimes it was barely reported. It was reported as a local story and not, not, none of it was ever tied together. We at True North, of course, took the opposite approach. We, we had a a story called "A Map of the Churches That Have Been Vandalized or Burned Since Residential school Story Announcement." Uh, we we kept updating this piece as it, as it came. At this point, there were 68 churches across the country that were that were either burnt to the ground or desecrated. And and again, uh, this was one of our biggest uh, news stories on our website this year because no one else was doing this. No other media outlet was keeping track of them or giving you a tally or giving you maps and and, and filling Canadians in in the way that they clearly wanted because this was such a big story for us, Andrew. But again, this, this sustained assault on Christianity and its institutions and its house of worship and the fact that the media was just nowhere to be found.
1: Yeah, it's the last acceptable prejudice. I mean, there have been stories in the last few years when someone has vandalized a mosque or a synagogue, which is also deplorable, and Justin Trudeau will put out a statement, he'll condemn it, he'll call an address... He might even go and visit the site of it and have a meeting and talk about the importance of fighting against Islamophobia and, in some cases, anti-Semitism. But when dozens of churches had been burned, had been vandalized, had been threatened, he was literally completely silent. I don't just mean he didn't say a lot. I mean, for, for the longest time, for weeks, he was completely and utterly silent, had no condemnation finally gave a half-hearted one when it became such a bigger story, I think thanks in in large part to the reporting of True North and other independent media outlets. And then as well, you had that lawyer or the head of of the BC Civil Liberties Union saying that, uh, you know, we should burn it all down. And that was something that, again, was met with a lot of defense and support from several of the uh, elites in the civil liberties world or so-called civil liberties world and and government. So this is a, a very real problem and and you know in Ontario we had uh, two churches notably actually three. There was a Harvest in Windsor, there was Trinity Bible Chapel in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, Church of God in uh, in Elmer down in Elgin County, churches that had their doors locked on them because they were refusing to comply with measures that were restricting them but not restricting the grocery store and the liquor store.
0: It's so wild, such a such a double standard Andrew and I, I, you you say it's the last acceptable prejudice. I, I I agree. Except for now, there's an even new a newer and more acceptable uh, prejudice, and that is against unvaccinated people. That's like the only group that we're allowed to. Yeah, yeah. That that, that puts you at the very very bottom of the totem pole. Okay, let's uh, let's let's move on to the uh, last question I had for you, Andrew, which is what. So so we talked about the stories that the media did not cover, but we know that the media is is mostly just guilty of creating these total fake narratives that are, just have no. Um, no New connection to real life, and they're so easy to, to pick apart that, 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 that it, it's sort of self-explanatory, but I wanted you to pick out what you thought was the, the, the biggest story of the year that the media either got completely wrong or they completely blew out of proportion.
1: I think the, for me, this was a slam dunk, the People's Party of Canada. Now, at first, this was one that the media didn't cover. When, when Maxi Bernier launched his campaign, I was at the, the press conference he did in Ottawa, and there were a bunch of reporters there. He took like 40 minutes of questions, and then at the end of it, no one really ran any stories. No one no one actually ran any of the coverage. And for the longest time, we were seeing polls that had Bernier up at 9%, 10%, 12% in Alberta and, and parts of Ontario. It was up even higher than that. And the media was just completely doing a blackout. We know he wasn't in the debate. And it was only near the end of the campaign when people realized this wasn't a blip, that the media started to pay attention but even then, didn't really understand or seek to understand where it was coming from. They didn't understand that a big part of the PPC support was not coming from disgruntled conservatives, but was coming from people that had been traditional non-voters, people that had voted Green or NDP in past elections. A lot of uh, natural living types that were against vaccine mandates because of their own personal ethos that are not politically conservative. So there was a very diverse uh, support base there, and, and we. It covered not just the Conservative campaign, but also the PPC campaign. I was on the road with Maxine Bernier for a few days in Alberta and, and saw this coalition that the media just simply wasn't covering.
0: Well, no, it's, it's, it's so true. And then even to add another element onto that, the, when, when the media finally did start covering Bernier and the PPC, they, they did it in such a condescending, mean-spirited, uh, dis, dis, disauthentic, un- unauthentic, Way Because because they painted these people as if they were um, anti-vaxxers or anti-science or quacks, like fringe far right. Uh, We saw a lot of stories that had that undertone that really, instead of trying to understand and respect Canadian voters who are part of a political trend, even if it's a political trend that you don't have respect for, instead of doing that... The, the media just completely took the, the the worst of the worst and and held that up as an example of who these voters were I, I can't imagine them treating um, green party voters or NDP parties with uh, party voters with such disdain the way that they the way that they showed towards the PPC
1: no not at all and I mean just the imbalance there of the greens versus the PPC I think is interesting because the Green party was just in a, a perpetual state of turmoil that involved the uh, resignation and well, it was going to be an expulsion, but I think she resigned before they got to her of anime Paul, but the Green Party was still being treated as though it was just this entirely normal, happy, peaceable alternative to the mainstream party is when the Green Party paled in comparison to the PPC. And again, this is not an endorsement of, of PPC. I don't have a stand. I don't endorse any party, but I, I'm all about uh, endorsing the idea of covering the PPC and covering the narratives and, and the mainstream media certainly w- was ignoring what was happening there, which we know from the numbers was not as, as significant as those, you know, 12 13 14% polls were suggesting, but was still a, a pretty significant trend in the election.
0: Absolutely. And the fact that Bernie wasn't allowed into the debate. So you had this ridiculous spectacle where you had anime Paul who doesn't really have any political background. You could tell that she was really out of her depth when asked about any issue that wasn't related to the environment. And then they wouldn't let Maxim Bernier, who's a former cabinet minister, almost the leader of the Conservative Party. He lost by a hair. Could, could, could you imagine, Andrew, if someone came that close to winning the Liberal leadership and then ended up splitting off and forming their own sort of Liberal-adjacent party? Um, the, the media would be all over it. That person would be a star, but of course because it's a conservative on the right they they, they, they had to uh, come up with the worst accusations and and really really just malign him um, it, with character assassinations that didn't suit um did, didn't actually have any living um, Connection to to Bernier and what he actually was about, and what he actually stood for. So I I, I tend to agree with your choice. Well, for for my choice, and I'm I'm sort of going to bring this whole episode full circle because I think that the biggest story that the media got wrong and blew out of proportion was the story of the mass graves at residential schools, and and I say that tongue in cheek because there were of course no mass graves found at residential schools. Uh, the story, you know, when it first came out, it was really vague and and unclear, and I think that the way that the 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 the, the uncertainty Sort of compounded with with reporters filling in their own um, words. So so you know, the original news release from the Takemloops band was uh, we have discovered. Um, we have discovered graves um, in, at our school. Basically, at this former site of the residential school, we use ground-penetrating radar. Um, nobody really knew what that meant, so the headlines were saying um, bodies were discovered, graves were dug up, um, uh, you know, children's remains were found. Uh, they were found in mass graves. There, there, there was just a huge disconnect from the what the media was writing. about. Well, it wasn't just Canadian media; it was a global media. It was BBC, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, all of these big um, outfits, as well as the CBC and Globe and Mail and Post media in Canada, completely botching the story. Um, and, and then it kind of took on a life of its own, where where you know everyone had to agree that Canada had committed genocide, everyone had to agree um, that this was a crime against humanity, and everyone had to agree that Canada was awful, we we're going to cancel Canada Day, and to bring it back to the first story we talked about, that we were going to lower that flag and basically just hang our heads and shave. Of course, none of that was wrong. When they finally got around to the presentation by the scientists about the ground um, penetrating radar um, we learned that the, the, the science is really unclear that the researchers themselves said that there was no way to know how many people were buried whether they were children or adults whether they had anything to do with the residential school um, their estimate wasn't 215 as every media outlet had, had reported it was probably more like 200 and, and and then you know all of the other stories that, that came out of it other other um, reserves making similar uh, accusations you know we heard from people in their community saying well, you know, this is, these graves were found in a graveyard. Um, they used to be marked, but the, but the gravestones eroded over time and um, we don't know whose um, graves these belonged to. This was also a community cemetery. In um, one of the cases in Lower Kootenai, the cemetery predated the residential school by about 30 years and it was actually associated with a hospital and not with the residential school. So there's just so many holes in the story, Andrew, that the narrative it just b- uh, bared, no, bared no similarity whatsoever <laughs> to the Facts on the Ground. And at times I felt like I was one of the only reporters in the entire country that was even bothering to look into this stuff. And again, because of that, um, this was a huge story for us at True North. Uh, my, my report, Six Things the Legacy Media Got Wrong, uh, also became one of the biggest sites in the history of our website. So I think that Canadians started to sort of see through the myth and, and realize that there's more to story than the story than the ridiculous narrative headlines that were being pushed by legacy media. Yeah, and
1: I think, I mean, you did absolutely tremendous work on on that. And I'm still very proud to have been uh, not not on those projects because you were taking the lead on it, but to have been working with you in general as you worked on this. Because one of the big challenges, and you mentioned the word narrative there is important, is that you can't let facts get in the way of a narrative to a lot of the people that are pushing narratives. That's the attitude they take. And I would say it's entirely possible to deplore residential schools and Canada's past treatment of Indigenous people while also raising questions in a journalistic fashion about any allegation that's made about anything. And I I do think that the deference that we are expected to take on the Indigenous file is something that very much clouded the mainstream media's willingness to ask questions that would be asked about any other group making a claim. If you say, you know, so-and-so murdered my daughter, asking for details about that has nothing to do with not believing or challenging. It's doing your job. It's, it's doing your due diligence. And, and there was, I think, a lot of fear, a lot of fear that anything you do to poke around and ask questions and try to demand proof was going to be stepping on the toes of the Indigenous communities, which media did not want to do.
0: And, and it's sort of a, a sad state where we would rather just take these terrible accusations against our country at face value than bother doing a little bit of journalism because of course I agree, Like I, I'm the last person to defend a residential school program. It was a big government centralized program um, that, that, that that sought to break up families. That's, that's complete um, opposite of what conservatives believe in and want, but at the same time, it's like I, t- I care about the truth and I care about facts and I think that that is, is sort of what led you're right, that's what should lead all journalists. And the fact that it was just True North, maybe a few other outlets, but hardly, I, not not even. I, I didn't even really see Post Media pick up this issue other than my own reports in Post Media. So really um, a, ch- a chill over the legacy media um, out there because no one really wanted to be seen uh, po- poking around on this issue and and, and raising questions. Well, uh, again, Andrew, I think that the, the, all all of these stories we talked about just confirm the reason why True North exists, the reason why True North is doing so well, the reason why True North is growing, and we have a bigger audience than ever. And you know, you have been with us pretty much since the very beginning, and it's so it's so great to watch our team expand and and continue to grow. And, and you know, the, the reports that you and I do um, continuing to have the reach. So I, I just want to say, yeah, it's great to have you on the team. It's great to have you, uh, part of North a leading force here. And thank you so much for joining uh, the show today.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for all your work.
0: All right. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Candice Welcom and this is the Candice Welcom Show.